Our scripture reading this morning is in Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 10 to 14. If you have your pew Bibles, that's page 973. We're going to give some context to the scripture by starting at verse 1 of chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So that those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather. The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Jesus Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. May God bless the reading of his word. I trust you've kept your Bibles open to Galatians chapter 3. Before I read from that portion of Scripture, listen to the words of another hymn penned by Isaac Watts and recall Pastor Sam's prayer this morning. Cursed be the man forever cursed that does one willful sin commit. Death and damnation for the first, without relief and infinite. Thus Sinai roars and round the earth, thunder and fire and vengeance flings, but Jesus, thy dear gasping breath, and Calvary say gentler things. Pardon and grace and boundless love streaming along the Savior's blood and life and joy and crowns above obtained by a dear bleeding God. Listen how he prays. The charming sound dwells on his dying lips. Forgive. And every groan and gaping wound cries, Father, let the rebels live. And now, a word of advice to those who refuse to believe 
and an affirmation. By what? Go, you that rest upon the law, and toil and seek salvation there. Look to the flame that Moses saw and shrink and tremble and despair. But I'll retire beneath the cross. Savior, at thy dear feet I'll lie. And the keen sword that justice draws, flaming and red, shall pass me by. In 1999, the painkiller Vioxx was approved by the FDA. But in 2004, it was quickly withdrawn from the market. While it was available to be used, however, the FDA analyst estimated that approximately 139,000 heart attacks were caused by it, many of them fatal. Getting your medicine right matters. But it's even more important to get your theology right. To go wrong here, especially with regard to how we find acceptance with God, is absolutely deadly. This is what the Apostle Paul was concerned about in the churches of Galatia, which he had been instrumental in planting. Some theological drug reps, forgive me, Duane and Bobby Goble, some theological drug reps were selling the young converts a prescription that was supposed to make them healthier. It was, in fact, deadly. It was a Christ-plus-something medicine. To be specific, it was a Christ-plus-law. It was a grace-plus-works. It was a faith-plus-obedience doctrine. And so Paul, like a true, wise, and loving health care giver or doctor, had to write this rather strong, straightforward, hard-hitting, and sometimes blunt letter. It was designed to get these dear believers off of their dangerous and deadly medicine. After defending the authenticity and divine authority of his apostolic office in chapters 1 and 2, Paul launched into his defense of the true gospel in chapters 3 and 4. We've been looking at what he said in chapter 3. In verses 1 through 5, he gave to the Galatians, and if you will, to us, a kind of six-question quiz. One fill-in-the-blank, two multiple choices, and three yes or no's. The fill in the blank question was, who has bewitched you? And the right answer was the Judaizers. The two multiple choice questions were, first, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or faith? The no-brainer answer, of course, was faith. The second multiple choice question was in verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or 
by hearing with faith? Again, the answer is a no-brainer. It was by faith. The three yes or no questions were, first, are you so foolish? Pretty hard to answer yes or no. Humility should have made them say yes. Wisdom should have enabled them to say no. The second yes or no was having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The answer should have been no. And the third yes or no question was, did you suffer so many things in vain? The answer should have been no. And then, in the verses Pastor Mark opened up for us so helpfully last Lord's Day morning, Paul went on to remind the Galatians that they were saved, that they were justified the same way Abraham was saved and justified, namely by faith. Paul made it clear to the Galatians that God had promised Abraham, the first promise is found in Genesis 12, 3, that someday all of the families of the earth, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed in and through him, and that God would justify someday Gentiles by faith, the same way he justified Abraham back on that occasion. In essence, Paul was saying to the Galatians, look, you're Galatians. You are the kind of people God had in mind when he gave that promise to Abraham. You have now been justified like he was by faith and by faith alone. Those, said Paul, who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. But that's the point. It's by faith. And it's through faith alone. Hence, during the Reformation, that great sola called sola fide, only by faith. And here in our present passage, beginning with verse 10 and concluding with verse 14, Paul continues to focus on the instrumental role of faith. Paul's argument continues. It's like a piece of fabric. These truths that he's setting out are not like marbles that we might dump on the floor. They're all separate from one another. It's a piece of cloth. It's a piece of fabric. It's interwoven. In a sense, it's inseparable. And that brings with it, of course, a certain challenge. But what Paul keeps saying over and over to the Galatians and to us is that there is no other way to find acceptance with God. There is no other way to be justified. There is no other way to find a right standing with God. There is no other way to come into his loving favor than by faith. Faith exclusively in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. Now, I want you to notice the striking contrast between verse 9 from last excuse me, verse 9, yes, from last week's message by Pastor Mark, and verse 10. Notice the contrast. Verse 9, could I just pull a phrase out? So then, those who are of faith are blessed. Those who are of faith are blessed. Now look at how verse 10 begins. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. 
Those who are of faith are blessed. Those who are of law are cursed. That's basically what Paul is saying. You can't miss the contrast, the bold contrast. In fact, it's interesting how many times he uses these words in just these few verses. No less than five times in verses 10 through 13, he says, law, 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 five times. And no less than five times, he uses the word curse. He says, curse, cursed, curse, curse, cursed. Five times. But the contrast is between blessing and curse. So let's look at Paul's reasoning in these verses, verses 10 through 14. It's such a vital passage. We must, we absolutely must understand this, dear brothers and sisters. In these few verses, five, Paul makes for us four assertions and proves each of his assertions with the Scripture by appealing to the Word of God. Now, when you read the passage, it may feel a little complex to you at first. What is he doing? This seems hard to sort out. I'm not sure I follow his line of reasoning. But upon just a little reflection and a little analysis, it begins to emerge. And by the way, let me encourage you to do what I encouraged at the very first of this series. If you haven't started doing it, could I still encourage you to do it? Read one chapter in Galatians a day. On Monday, read chapter 1. On Tuesday, read chapter 2, and so forth. And what that will enable you to do is to read through the book. I've now finished reading it um, eight times. I, I read an extra time. Get in on this. Get familiar with it. Think about the passage. And as we look at these five verses, we begin to see what the Apostle Paul is actually doing in his line of argument. So let me direct your attention to that now. I'm going to say again that he sets forth for us four assertions. If this were a Bible class, I'd say just look at it a minute and take 60 seconds and see if you can find them and write them down. Identify them at least. We don't have that time. Assertion number one is found in verse 10. He says simply, all who rely on works of the law are... And I would just insert parentheses right now, right now. And again, to refer to Pastor Sam's prayer, he made it clear, though he wasn't trying to teach us, he was confessing, that the moment we were born, we were under the curse. All who rely, that's a key word. That's a key word. We love the law of God at Heritage. God has written it on our hearts. It sent us in fear and trembling with the thunder of Sinai to Calvary's cross and coming to our Savior, the conversion experience resulted in the writing of his moral will upon our hearts. We love the law of God, but we don't rely on our obedience to it for our salvation. And Paul is saying, he is asserting, All, every single human being in the history of mankind, all who rely on the works of the law are, are right now under a curse. And so far from the law being able to help us find favor and blessing from God, 
that is, with regard to our salvation, it will, in fact, do the exact opposite. See, the Pharisees were just so wrong. They thought they were obtaining the favor of God and the right standing with God by observing the law. And Paul is saying it's just the opposite. If you rely on the law for your right standing with God, the fact of the matter is you will inevitably come under the curse of God, not the blessing of God. And not just future, right now. Every moment of your life that you rely upon the law to have a right standing with God, you are under a curse. That's the assertion. Isn't it clear? Is there anything about that statement that that really doesn't make sense to you? But you see, as soon as he asserts, he proves. And he proves with the use of Scripture. What is the proof? Well, it's the rest of verse 10. For it is written, this, these, this is the ground of my assertion, says Paul. I'm going to prove to you why what I just said is true. It is written, by the way, this is found in Deuteronomy 27, 26. First, be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now, I just want to emphasize a couple of words besides, of course, the word cursed. I want you to notice, be everyone, everyone who does not abide. Abide means continue perpetually. Continue perpetually doing what? Obeying all. Really? Is it all? Yes, it's all. It's not actually in verse 26 of chapter 27, but as soon as you go to chapter 8 and verse 1, it is there. The word all is there. And when you go later to chapter to the same chapter 28 and verse 58, the word all is there. And so the proof of Paul's assertion is that the word of God itself teaches that anyone who does not perpetually and perfectly obey all of the law of God is under the curse of God. Well, who can do that? Paul told us in another letter, and we'll not take the time to turn to Romans 8, verse 3, that because of the weakness of our flesh, that is to say, because we are fallen human beings, with a bent towards sin and with an, a native rebellion toward God. The law has no power in our lives. It is weak through the flesh. While the law, in a sense, stands ready for us to perfectly obey it so that we might have a perfect standing with God, the law says it's so sad. The law says to us, it's so sad that because of your fallen human condition, you are not able to keep it at all, let alone all of it. So, we're in big trouble. We are in big trouble. Since no one can render this perpetual and perfect 
spiritual obedience to the moral will of God and in their case also to the ceremonial law of God. We're all under the curse. And I want to make an important observation here, however. The verse says, for all who rely on the works of the law. Now, some of you might be saying, well, I, I pass that one because I'm not one of those people. I'm not trying to rely on the works of the law. In fact, I don't even care about the law of God. So, does that mean you're not under the curse? The verse again. Cursed be everyone, not just those who try to rely upon it for their right standing with God. Cursed be everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law and do them. So this curse is not just for the reliers. It's for the non-reliers. And that means every single human being on the face of the earth throughout the entirety of history, who does not have that curse removed through the method that our text is going to tell us, namely faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, will die under that curse. And that includes everyone listening to me this morning, either here or via Internet. The truth of Paul's first assertion is a very foreboding truth, and it should put many of us some of us at least this morning in fear and trembling. And hopefully some of us, like I hope some of those Galatians, are ready to cry out in desperation, then what is my hope? In which case, Paul is going to say to us, not so fast. Not quite so fast. I'm not done driving this nail. And the reason is, says Paul, because I know how tenaciously some of you are, in holding to your law hope. And that's because of your fallenness. One of the commentators I read this week said that because of our human depravity, legalism is everyone's default. All of us try to find some way to justify ourselves in a self kind of righteousness. Paul says, in essence, I'm sorry, I have another assertion to make before I give you even a hint of hope. And here it is, assertion number two, found in verse 11. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Let me just abbreviate that, get rid of the now it is evident. Assertion number two, no one, no one, no one. See the absoluteness of this assertion. No one is justified before God by the law. Now, we should have concluded that by Paul's first assertion because we've already seen that we're all under its curse and we've all broken it. How could we ever be justified by keeping it? But as I said, Paul's not willing to let us just assume that and conclude that. He's driving a nail and he wants to pound it all the way through the wood. And so he boldly goes on to state the impossibility of being justified by law-keeping. And again, how does he prove it? By the word of God. So we quote scripture again. Four times the apostle quotes the word of God in this brief passage. What is his proof text now? His proof text now comes from Habakkuk 2.4. And it is, 
the righteous, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, it's a little different argument. It's not only a fact that everyone has broken the law and is under curse, but there's also this clear teaching, says the Apostle Paul in the Bible, and we find it in Habakkuk 2, that it's by faith, it's by faith that men and women are made righteous with God. We just saw that in the case of Abraham. Justification by faith. Now you know that that text found in Habakkuk was the great formative and transformative text in the life of Martin Luther. He wrestled with that text. He wrestled and wrestled. And he prayed it over and over and he quoted it over and over. And on one particular occasion, some of you may know, that he went to a certain cathedral where supposedly the actual steps to Pilate's Hall had been moved so that people could climb up on those steps and kiss them where supposedly some of the blood of Jesus spilled. And Luther did it! But even in the midst of climbing up those steps, he remembered Habakkuk 2.4. And he said, that's it! Because it came to him with greater clarity and power than ever before. And he went back and he began to understand this whole concept that the righteous God that he so feared and actually hated and the phrase the righteousness of God that he so feared and hated became one of the most precious phrases he could ever find in the Bible because he came to understand that it was the perfect record of Jesus Christ which is given to those who trust in him, which is transferred to their account. He came to understand that, and he says when he saw it, it was like the gates of paradise opened to him. He was so delivered. He was so refreshed by that great truth that justification is by faith. Now, should we be surprised to hear Paul say this? Could I just take you back for a moment to verse 16 of chapter 2? And I want to suggest one more time, I think this has been mentioned, but I'm going to assert that this is the key text of the entire book. And you, you may differ. I think I have a lot of support in saying that. Look at verse 16. Look how similar it is to what we're already seeing and what we were yet going to see. Yet we know... Excuse me, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order, for what purpose, Paul? In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Just in case you're interested, Works of the law, that phrase is found six times in this letter, four times in, five times, excuse me, in chapter 2, and once in verse 10 of chapter 3. And by the way, he uses it two more times in the book of Romans, and that's it. Eight times, six times in the book of Galatians. How clear is Galatians 2.16? Would you memorize that? Would you build your life on that? This is what he's talking about in chapter 3, 10 and following. 
So here is the hope of the Galatians, and here is our hope. But I still long that some of us, perhaps like some of them, are still ready to cry out. Well, then, then let me have this righteousness. If the, if the righteous live by faith, I want that righteousness. Where specifically should I put my faith? How does it work, Paul? What are the grounds of this righteousness? And if that is our desperation, it's as if Paul says to us, uh, not so fast. I'm not through driving my nails. Some of you may still have too much hope in the power of law-keeping. I want to make another assertion, says the Apostle Paul. I'm going to give you a glimpse. I have already given you a glimpse of hope when I said that the righteous shall live by faith. And I'm going to come back and give you far more hope. But be patient. I'm still driving this nail. I want to make another assertion. What is his third assertion? His third assertion is... The law is not of faith. Notice it's in verse 12. It's 1 in 10, 1 assertion in 11, 1 assertion in 12, and 1 assertion in verse 13. I'm just telling you how easy it is to remember this. But now we're looking at his third assertion. His third assertion is the law is not of faith. Very simple, isn't it? The law is not of faith. What's that mean? He simply means law is not about believing. Law is about doing. Law is about obedience and doing. Faith is about trusting and relying. So he says, I just want to say this right on the heels of the fact that the righteous shall live by faith. You must remember, by way of contrast, the law is not a faith. You who are so prone to rest and rely on your law-keeping for a right standing with God, if justification is by faith, then let me say to you again, the law is not of faith. It's not about faith. It's about doing. And what is his proof? His proof is Leviticus 18.5. And notice he goes on to quote it. Rather... Quote, the one who does them shall live by them. Now, I think that the Pharisees and the legalists took that passage out of its context, which was more gracious, and they made it a doctrine of salvation. But there is a sense in which it's true, even if it's taken that way. I think it's safe for me to say that God would still be true to this promise. If any of us were able, from the point of our birth to the point of our death, to keep all of the law of God perfectly in, in word, thought, and deed, which includes, and this is about the third time I'm referring to Pastor Sam's prayer, it includes the obligation to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. God says to us, not with his tongue in his cheek, if any of you can do that from the point of your birth to your death, you don't need to be justified. You don't need an atonement. 
I have no issue with you because you have no sin with me. But who can do it? Who has ever done it? One person. Even our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is just hammering this nail. that You cannot do this by law. Because law is not a faith. Now again, we as the Galatians should be even more desperate. We're under a curse. We can't be justified by keeping the law. Law keeping for salvation is not about faith. What then finally is our hope, Paul? Don't you have at least one more assertion for desperate people like us? Thank you for the hope that a person can obtain righteousness with God by faith. But please expand upon that. How does it work? Upon what is it founded? Paul says, okay, now I'm ready to give you the full, blazing, bright light of comfort by making my fourth assertion. It's in verse 13. Here it is. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And I'll stop right there because now comes his proof. Just observe a couple of words. Redeemed. It means to purchase back. It means to buy. We had to be redeemed. We had to be ransomed from the prison of sin and justice. And Christ did that. He redeemed us from the curse. What is the curse? We've already talked about it. It's that holy, righteous judgment of God upon all who willfully violate His law. We live under that curse. And the very curse that we live under and we're born under and die under if we don't become Christians, Christ redeemed us from. How? By being a curse. Not by merely taking a curse upon Himself. Not by merely being cursed for us, but notice the words, by becoming a curse. He became a curse for us. This is the most holy, the most sacred part of this text. I wish that I could treat it like it deserves to be treated. Can we even contemplate what it must have meant for our spotless, blameless, pure, and perfect, loving Savior who had never sinned in word, thought, or deed to take his perfect life upon a cross and to let the sins of the world and all whom he was going to be redeemed be placed upon him and imputed to him in such a way that his Father who loved him from all eternity and with whom he had such sweet communion and fellowship had no alternative but to turn his back upon him to turn his face away from him and to pour out the billows of his wrath upon him. Can you, can you even imagine what it was for him to become cursed for us? I re-listened and I re-watched actually the, the, the wonderful sermon, one, one of the top sermons of my life's experience. I'm serious. It's not an overstatement. You can ask me, what, what are the most overwhelming sermons you've ever heard? 
And when R.C. Sproul preached on this, that together for the gospel, there was an unusual anointing upon him. Unusual. He sat through the whole sermon. At times he was overcome in trying to explain the transaction. It was deeply moving. And he reminded us all of the great blessing that that we can give to one another and that God himself gives to us and we can hope for the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And Sproul said it's as if God reversed it all on his son. He said, no, I will not bless you at this moment. I do not want to preserve you and keep you and be near to you. I will not let my face shine upon you. I will turn my face away from you, and I will cause the whole universe to be dark. You will see no light, and I will not be gracious to you. I will pour out wrath, judgment upon you. And I will not give you peace. I will give you torment. Sproul said in a way that was reverent, it's as if God spoke to his son from heaven and said, God damn you. One of the commentators I read this week used similar language. Philip Ryken, the pastor of 10th Pres in Philadelphia, said, we have a, listen to my words carefully, because if they just don't sound right because of the world in which we live, but they're true. We worship and love and trust a God-damned Messiah. This is why, among other reasons, the Jews could not conceive of trusting in such a Savior. Are you kidding me? The Messiah, anointed one, great victor of his people. You Christians are telling us that this one became a curse? And the anointed one cursed? Yes. yes. It's the only way we can get out from under the curse. He was cursed for us. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. All of us who look to him alone as the curse bearer have the curse removed. That's what it says. That's what the text says. Christ redeemed us from the curse. He redeemed us from the curse. Do you hear that? Is that not gospel? Is that not good news? If it's not good news, then you don't understand what it means to live under the curse. And you have no realization of the the way in which that curse will be epitomized and reach its crescendo for a never-ending eternity when you are cast into hell. Only those who see and understand the fear of being under that wrath, that justifiable wrath, And see why it would be good news for some some preacher to come along and say, hey, let me tell you something really, 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 really good. 
one came and redeemed from the curse all who will trust in him. That's the fourth assertion. And then, you know, how does he prove it? He proves it by quoting scripture again, and this time he quotes from Deuteronomy 21:23, which simply says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, I need you to understand that during the days of the Old Testament, the Jews didn't practice what we call crucifixion. But I'll tell you what they did practice. They practiced demonstrating the shame and the curse of people who had to be executed. People who died uh, by capital punishment for wicked crimes were after their execution, which was usually by stoning, hung on a tree. They're already dead or on a post. And people would look at that person hanging. Joshua hung five kings this way. Seven sons of Saul were hung. People walked and I said, boy, there's a person who's cursed. It's not the hanging that makes you cursed. It's the crimes. The hanging symbolizes the fact that you were cursed. And the writers of the New Testament repeatedly speak about Jesus hanging on a tree. And the purpose is to bring to our attention this whole notion. Our Savior was really cursed, wasn't he? Yes, he was cursed. He was cursed when he was on the cross, before he died. He was cursed for us. Now, what was the purpose of it? And you notice there's a twofold purpose. I'm just putting this as part of the assertion. It's an assertion with a, with a twofold purpose clause. Don't want to be too, too technical. The assertion is Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Set aside the little parentheses, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Set aside the parentheses. Listen to it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, so that, so that, so that, so that what? Two times, so that. Now, are these two different things? In one sense, they're different, but they're inseparable. What are the two so that's? What are the two purposes for which Christ was redeemed us from the curse? One, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Go back however many centuries you need to go back and listen to God speak to Abraham. And he's saying, Abraham, someday, someday, someday in you and through you, families of the earth are going to be blessed. And they're going to be blessed with the same blessing that I'm about to give you. If you believe my word, if you trust me, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to reckon you Righteous. I'm going to account you righteous. That's what it says in verse 6 of our text. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him. It was put to his account. God says to Abraham, believe me and you will be justified by your faith. But Abraham, here is my promise that someday Gentiles are going to be blessed through your seed. And so Paul is saying to us that blessing couldn't come to the Gentiles in its fullest measure until Christ became a curse 
for those who are under the curse. So that's that's the purpose for this being redeemed from the curse, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. What's the blessing of Abraham? Listen to me really simply. Justification by grace through faith. What's the blessing that came upon Abraham and the blessing that was going to come eventually upon the Gentiles? Justification by faith. What's the blessing? Justification by faith. Not by works. Justification by faith. But there's another blessing. It's it's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look. It says, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. In the Old Testament, even though the Holy Spirit was operative, don't ever think that the Holy Spirit didn't come until the New Testament. People were born again in the Old Testament by the same Holy Spirit. But there was a unique, there was a unique and special sense in which the Holy Spirit was outpoured after our Savior had offered his life and made a perfect atonement for the sins of the world. There was a there was a special sense in which it was outpoured. And in that sense, it was promised. I'm not going to take you to the passages that promise it. That, that, that expression is used repeatedly. Wait for the promise of the Spirit. And Paul already t- reasoning with these Galatians and what Pastor Mark showed us, would you just notice again back in verses 1 and 2 and 3 of chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, was before your eyes, and so forth. Verse 2, let me ask you this, only this. That's one of the, <clears throat> excuse me, that's one of the multiple choice questions of the quiz. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What's assumed in that question that they had already received the Spirit? He said, I just want, I just want to know, did you get that by your obedience to the law or did you get that by faith? And then notice again in verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you, there is a blessing of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the Galatian believers. Don't ever forget, dear people, that the Galatians were Christians, okay? The Galatians were Christians. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? The big deal is that Christians can get screwed up in their theology. That's the big deal. And very subtly, smuggle in works of the law and self-righteousness. That's the big deal. But you see what the argument is. They had the Holy Spirit. Paul is arguing that that Holy Spirit, in a sense, the gift of that Spirit's ministry in the lives of his people had to be purchased by our Savior. And part of that gift is in, is due to the fact that he became a curse. That's the fruit of it. That's the fruit of the assertion. Well, I need to conclude. I just want to... I just want to encourage us, dear people, to... uh, go away from this passage with a couple of emotions. One would be, wow, wow, I don't want to do what they did. I don't even want to subconsciously, subtly, somehow fall back into a works righteousness, a an obedience righteousness for my standing with God. I love God's law. I want to obey God's law entirely. I'm saying that for the second time in this sermon. This isn't this isn't about having a light view of God's moral law. 
This is about being determined not to trust in our obedience for our justification, but in his obedience for our justification. That's what this is about. And so we go away from this and we say, God, keep me from that. Don't let me ever fall into that, even subtly. Keep me near the cross. And when you get discouraged in your Christian life, that's what you have to remember. At the end of the day, it's not about how successful you have been today. We're all miserable failures. But we trust a Savior who is perfectly successful for us. doesn't mean we look upon our sins lightly. I counseled a dear sister in Christ this week who struggles with this. And she'll know that I'm talking about this. You don't know what I'm talking about. And she has a a tender and sensitive conscience. And she finds herself confessing sin all day long. She's rather oppressed with it. And the short of my counsel was every time the Holy Spirit makes you conscious of your sinfulness, repent of it, confess it, but, and this is the huge but, flee quickly to the cross, flee quickly to the fountain that is open for sin and cleansing, and end in joy, end in joy, sorrow for my terrible failures today. And the devil wants you to stay there. <laughs> but the gospel says, oh, is that the end of the gospel then? That's, that's it? That God, the good news is that God makes people sorry for their sins. No, 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 that's the beginning of the good news. The good news is that God makes people sorry for their sins, flee to the Lord Jesus Christ and find fresh cleansing of conscience and trust and peace with him. And and let every sin bring you back to the joy of the gospel. And she emailed me back this week. Yes, I'm doing email. I'm also doing texting. Yeah, whoa. <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I haven't gotten to where I'm tweeting or Facebook and that, that place yet, Brother Rich. But this sister wrote me back and said, I'm so encouraged. I'm living in joy the rest of this week. That's what the gospel should do to us. And this is what I've got to conclude with. There, were, there are other things I would like to have said, but I'm just going to be really candid again and say that uh, yesterday in our mentoring class, Brother John DeVito shared with us a reading from J.C. Ryle. And what Ryle was suggesting is that one of the reasons why Christians struggle with assurance is because they confuse sanctification with justification. So I, I share this with you by way of helping you have more peace. Justification is our right standing with God. It's perfect. Sanctification is progressive. It's God making us like his son. It's God taking sin out of our lives, conforming us to the image of his son. It's a lifelong process, and it will never be completed in this life. But the moment we see him, we shall be like him. But here's what Ryle says. One of the most common causes of the lack of assurance, I suspect, is a defective view of the doctrine of justification. I'm inclined to think that justification and sanctification are insensibly confused together in the minds of many believers. They receive the gospel truth that there must be something done in us as well as something done for us. That's true. If we are true members of Christ. And so far they are right. But then without being aware of it, perhaps they seem to imbibe the idea that their justification is in some degree affected by something within themselves. They do not clearly see that Christ's work, not their own work, 
is the only ground of our acceptance with God, that justification is a thing entirely outside of us, for which nothing whatever is needful on our part but simple faith, and that the weakest believer is as fully and completely justified as the strongest. Many appear to forget that we are saved and justified as sinners and only sinners, and that we never can attain to anything higher if we live. Even if we live to the age of Methuselah, redeemed sinners, justified sinners, and renewed sinners, doubtless we must be, but sinners, 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 we shall be all the way to the very last. These people do not seem to comprehend that there is a wide difference between justification and our sanctification. Our justification is perfect, finished work. It admits no degrees. Our sanctification is imperfect and incomplete and will be to the last hour of our life. They appear to expect that a believer may at some period in his life be in a measure free from corruption and attain to a kind of inward perfection. And not finding this angelic state of things in their own hearts, they at once conclude there must be something very wrong in their state. So they go mourning all their days, oppressed with fears that they have no part or lot in Christ and refusing to be comforted. Let us weigh this point well. If any believing soul desires assurance and has not got it, let him ask himself, first of all, is he quite sure he is sound in the faith? If he knows how to distinguish things that differ, and if his eyes are thoroughly clear in the matter of justification, he must know what it is simply to believe and to be justified by faith before he can expect to feel assured. Last paragraph. In this matter, as well as many others, the old Galatian heresy is the most fertile source of error, both in doctrine and in practice. People ought to seek clearer views of Christ and what Christ has done for them. Happy is the man or woman who really understands justification by faith without the deeds of the law. I conclude where I began. Will you listen one more time? to the words of Isaac Watts in that great hymn from which I quoted. Only the last two verses this time. Here's his advice to any here. I am being facetious. If there's a person here who um, says, no, sorry, I'm going to stick with works of the law. Okay, this is what Watts says to you. Go, you who rest upon the law and toil and seek salvation there. Look to the flame that Moses saw and shrink and tremble and despair. Me? I'll retire beneath the cross. Savior, at thy dear feet, I'll lie. The keen or the sharp sword that justice draws, flaming and red, shall pass me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, don't let us make the mistake of the Galatians. We thank you that you have written your law upon our hearts, and we love it, and we want to obey you. Lord, you know how deceitful our hearts are and desperately wicked. There are times when even our progress or our obedience subtly becomes a reason perhaps to put a little more hope and trust in our state of conversion. Oh God, deliver us entirely from that. May unconverted who are here this morning 
go out of these doors, or better yet, not dare go out of these doors, not dare leave their pew or their chair without feeling the curse upon them and fleeing to the curse bearer, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. In Jesus' name we pray.